Hello, I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Tonight, we'll discuss how we can counter the despair, anxiety, and fear in the world with hope and unshakable confidence in our Lord. But before we get to that discussion, I'd like to talk briefly with EWTN's Peter Gagnon about a very important new miniseries that's premiering next week. Peter, what have you got for us this time? As you said, it's a very important ser miniseries. So, yeah. um, Dr. Mary Hassan, we produced a miniseries with her, five parts, called The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. It's um, filled with, with information, but, uh, and people, I think, are confused in that issue, even within the church. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, political motivation behind a lot of things. There's a lot of confusion for young people, especially. Mm -hmm. And um, this series- And there's also a lot of financial yeah. gain to be made, as Vanderbilt University has yeah. stated. No, absolutely. So, so Catholics need to understand what is happening with this movement and, um, and what is the truth behind it and how should we as Catholics react to this movement. So um, I think we have a, a clip here. Yeah, of, of let's Dr. take a Hassan. look at it. Catholics need to pay attention to what's happening in terms of gender ideology because whether they know it or not, it's affecting them. It's across the culture. It's affecting education. It's affecting our language. And so we have to be wise and we have to do what we can to protect our children, but then also to be proactive and to speak the truth. So that's, right. it's, it's extremely important. So it, it'll air next week, Monday through Friday at 5.30 p.m. Each episode, each day, Monday through Friday. And also it's gonna go on our on-demand page. So if people can't watch it at home, go to our on-demand page, ewtn.com forward slash on-demand, and it's on our free, it'll be free there beginning next week as well. So make sure people tune into that. All right, great. Thank you very much. Peter, appreciate it very much. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with tonight's guest. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Now, here to tell us more about our topic tonight, which is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and evangelization of other folks, please welcome the executive director of Acts 29 Ministries and the author of the book, Rescued, the Unexpected and Extraordinary News of the Gospel, Father John Ricardo. Father Ricardo, Welcome. Hey, thanks, Padre. It's great to be with you. Good to have you with us, too. Um, I've been very impressed by a number of short commercials I've seen on secular television where a basic, simple call to turn to Jesus Christ, to make an act of faith in Him, is made. Mm -hmm. This is an important thing, and we Catholics are one in this desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. What exactly is your group doing, Acts 29? Why, and why'd you call it Acts 29? Talk a little bit about yeah. that, if you would. So everybody who's watching is biblically literate, so they all know that there's only 28 chapters in Acts, right? And so I often yes. ask people, uh, what happens in the 29th chapter of Acts? And I often hear folks say nothing, and I say, no, you do. So it, it might be the name of our organization, our nonprofit, and uh, I know some other organizations that share the name, but um, we're all actually members of Acts 29, if you will. And Because what it's supposed to convey is that the same Holy Spirit who was writing the history of the early church is writing right now through your life and through mine. A another way of saying that is uh, you and I are not historical accidents. We don't just happen to be alive 
at this mm-hmm. moment in history. God very deliberately chose for you and me to be alive right now with everything that's happening, whether it's in the world or the country or the church, just like he chose Peter and Paul for that era, and he chose Joan of Arc for her era, and he chose Catherine of Siena for hers. Um, and he's given us gifts, natural and supernatural, and he wants to use us. Um, he wants to use us to continue the work that Jesus began when he triumphed over sin and death uh, until that day when he comes back and gloriously makes all things new. What you just said, though, is in a, a very different approach to life than many folks in our country who do think that they're haphazardly here. This is an, for them, the existence of the universe is a series of accidents, and their birth is as much an accident. And oftentimes withholding that kind of belief, because they can't prove that any more than we can prove that we're here on purpose. But by holding that belief, they are very much uh, opening themselves up to a certain kind of despair, like there's no purpose. And frequently, they find themselves angry And when they're so angry, they make us mad at them for being so goofy with their anger. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That that explains a lot of what's going on in our culture, this this anger and antagonism. That's not something that is part of the worldview you are laying out here. Yeah, you know, so uh, the way that's been helpful for us in trying to get into this conversation with people, I mean, two things. One is... My experience is a lot of us as disciples are overly convinced with trying to convince people. Uh, I don't have to convince anybody of anything. Um, That's not my job. My job is to deliver the mail. Uh, I'll let the Holy Spirit convince people. But we do need to know what we're talking about. And and there's ways to get into this. And and one of the ways, you know, I, I often will simply say, can I just tell you how I see? You don't have to put these on. But let me offer you a set of lenses to look through and see if they make more sense out of reality mm-hmm. than the lenses you're looking through. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to, to start that, you're very familiar with this, I know, but there was a, some research that came out back in 2019, came out from some of the Ivy League schools. And sociologists were, were really dumbstruck to realize that in 2018, for the first time in over a hundred years or in a hundred years, exactly life expectancy in our country declined for a third consecutive year, mm-hmm. which is really jarring mm-hmm. with, with all that we have in this country um, for three consecutive years, life expectancy went down. And the last time that happened was 1918. And what was happening in 1918 was the end of world war one and the Spanish flu. Yep. We, we haven't gone through a world war and we haven't gone through a pandemic like the Spanish flu. COVID's real. It was horrible. I had it, lost one of my best friends, but the Spanish flu killed 50 million people. We're dying now, sociologists tell us, because of what they call deaths of despair. We're, we're literally losing the will to live. In, in other words, the lenses that people are looking through, much like you just said, are leading to despair. Mm-hmm. And, and the deaths of despair are, are suicide, um, the opioid crisis, and cirrhosis of the liver. Mm-hmm. So what if, you know, what if there's another way to see? What if there's a way that actually brings hope? Not optimism, not naivete, but, mm-hmm. but hope. And that's what the gospel is. Yeah. Um, for most of the last 1,500 years— the Western world, at least, looked through biblical lenses. They, they weren't all saints. They weren't all aspiring to be saints. But they saw reality through biblical lenses. We don't anymore, which, which actually is a, a great opportunity for us, right? It means you and I have this extraordinary privilege and honor of sharing the gospel with people that I think have never heard it before. Yeah. And, and that includes people in the pews. I don't think most people 
ever heard the gospel. I think they've heard bits and pieces of it. Um, but Pope John Paul II, in a document that he wrote on catechetics, said, you know, the initial ardent proclamation of the kerygma, that, that core message of the gospel, is supposed to be such that a person is gradually overwhelmed, and then they're moved to entrust everything they have to Jesus in faith. I mean, try asking that question at Mass this coming Sunday. And, you know, quick show of hands, how many people here have been overwhelmed by the gospel? How many people have made a decision to give everything to Jesus in faith? I think you and I'd be doing this. Like, anybody out there, and, and if you got a dozen hands for that second question, I think you'd have a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so we would argue in our ministry, and it's one of the main things that we do, that the single most urgent pastoral task in the church is a compelling and attractive proclamation of the gospel. And so we, we, we feel like that's the charism that the Lord's given us, or at least it's one of the primary tasks that we have, and we just want to keep sharing it uh, everywhere we, we can go. So we wrote the book, but then we've also created a, a, a video experience, which is all free. It's online. The video experience is available at rescueproject.us, and on that website there are nine videos. There's uh, resources for participants, for facilitators. There's uh, communities that have started. I think we just launched this back in August, and we're running right now in 18 countries, and I think every state in the country, maybe except for one or two, which mm-hmm. bespeaks the hunger of the gospel. And every time, I, you know, like nobody calls you to say life's great, right? <laughs> like, that's just not the life of a priest. If, if I get a call, it's because something's wrong. I mean, that's what—that's fine. That's what we do. Yeah. And so I've just learned over time— before I, you know, if someone will come in, I'll ask you, you know, why, why are you here? What, what is it you hope I can do for you? And they share it. And then I'll just say, you know, before we get into that, can I take five minutes and just share with you how I see reality? Because if you don't understand this, nothing I'm going to say is going to make sense. And if they say no, then suddenly I've got some free time. If they say yes, they've just given me permission to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I'll just share the gospel in five minutes, which I, I do by asking four questions. And, and the, not every time, but the most common response I get from people after I'm done is either, uh, why have I never heard that before? Or that's not the God I knew growing up. Mm-hmm. And we get that from priests, too. We do, we do priest retreats, and we've brought about 2,500 priests on retreat over the last three years. I just had a guy last week, he's, he's retired, and he said to me, I've never heard most of this, and I think I'm just beginning to understand who Jesus is. Yeah. So that's why, this, uh, that's why this endeavor is both so urgent and so exciting, quite honestly, because um, God's on the move right now, despite the headlines, and, and He wants His children back. I think uh, two things. One, in seminary and outside the seminary, there have been too many folks who try to be missionaries from the world, from the culture to the church. Yeah. Missionaries to convince the church to act like secular people. And a lot of people in the church have gone along with it. Not just yeah. the Catholic church, all, all the denominations. We have to accede to abortion and all the other agendas of the culture. And with that is a lack of faith. And I think that's a a, a key part of this. Plus, the lack of catechesis in the face of that, you know, the catechesis coming from the church to the world. Right. That has been missing and communicating a Christian worldview as opposed to accommodating. Well, the other thing that goes on is a lot of people try to talk us out of a biblical worldview because, well, God couldn't create the world in seven days. It took 14 billion years since, and they'll use the, what they know as science, a popular yep. version usually, to discredit some elements 
instead of trying to understand it from their own worldview of the ancient world. And right. they say, see, you can't believe any of the rest of it either. Right. And that helps people to say, well, I guess there's nothing. That's yeah. one of the things that we, we're, we're encountering. Right. I think that's spot on. I think um, to that last point, one of the things that we do both, uh, especially in the rescue project, is um, how am in the world am I supposed to read Genesis, most especially the first 11 yeah. chapters? Because um, we're not fundamentalists. Um, the scriptures are inspired and they communicate truth. But, you know, like I always say to people, there's two stories of creation. They're in back to back chapters and they're different. It's not like the editors of the Bible miss that. You know, so uh, just like you said, we want to understand how is it that the authors are writing and why and what are those truths which God is communicating to us and revealing to us. And the truths are um, there's one God, not many. He's really good. Everything he made, he made out of love. And everything, by the way, is 90 plus billion light years across. So 90 billion times 5.88 trillion miles across. That's the everything, which he made without I any effort. I call that spoke. big. That's big. That's really big. <laughs> and, and yet, here's the biblical claim, right? Is that the creature which God loves the most in this massive universe is you. Yep. Not y'all. You, by name. God doesn't make crowds. He makes individuals. Right. And he made you and me for friendship with him and with each other. And he made us out of love. He didn't make us to be a slave. And, and we find happiness by loving and by being loved, rightly understood what love is, right? And, and that alone, like just to, just to grasp that, like the, in a certain sense, you could say the core message of the gospel is you matter. Yeah. You're, yeah. Like you matter to God. And, and, you know this, I know this as priests, the, the fundamental challenge in most people's lives is identity. I just yeah. don't know who I am. I don't, I don't know that I'm loved. I don't, I'm, I'm afraid that I can't be unconditionally loved. I know conditional love. I know, I know love as a reward. You know, you made the grade, you got the, the trophy, you got into the school, you've got the accomplishment, whatever. But to just be loved for who I am, most people have no experience of that. And that's that's core to the gospel, right? And yeah. then and then you just begin to break everything else after that. But that's the heart of it, and that's not what most people understand Christianity to be about. This, uh, as a matter of fact, something hopefully will be helpful to you. I'm now correcting a manuscript. You know, just going through the editing of a manuscript I wrote. In the first, you know, section is just on. How does a modern person read Genesis 1 through 11? You know, yeah. the, the, those opening chapters and trying to understand that because it is relevant to us. It's not that it's about, it, it was never written to refute Albert Einstein exactly. and his theory of relativity or uh, Lemaitre and the Big Bang Theory. It, it, that's not its purpose. In fact, that's right. the author of the Big Bang Theory is a Catholic priest. Exactly. Uh, you don't hear that from a lot of the right. atheists. <laughs> right, that's right. But it's, you know, who is a believer? He's not just a priest, he, he was a good priest. But this is something that we have to understand and not let us get in, let it get in the way of this basic truth you're talking about. God called Abram and transformed him into Abraham and a whole people that comes from him afterwards, but one at a time. And this is, yeah. this is key to understand. Yeah, no, I love that. I, 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 it's tragic that you had to make the clarification that he was not only a priest, that he was a believer as well, but um, nonetheless, such is truth, unfortunately. Um, I think one of the things, you know, the, the, the challenge then becomes, okay, so you get somebody to maybe to begin to understand God's goodness and power in creating, then comes this really difficult question, which is what we would call, you know, part two, if you will, of the gospel. And, and the difficult question is, well, then why is everything so obviously messed up? 
Like, what happened? Mm -hmm. If God's so good, and He, and He's only one, there's only one God, what went wrong? Mm -hmm. And again, you know, the, the biblical vision here, um, what we might call the bad news, which I'm not sure about you, but I don't think most people have ever heard. I, I think we are afraid of the bad news. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why the gospel is not experienced as extraordinary news by most people, because they really don't know just how horrific the bad news is. And, and the bad news, the biblical vision, is that one of the creatures that God made, who was good, out of envy, rebelled against God and went to war against the creature that God loves the most, and that's us. And and I I think when that really began to sink in in my life, everything began to change. When when I recognized I, I have an enemy, and, and that what happened at the fall in Genesis 3 um, is not simply that we were separated from God. Very true, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's worse than that. What, what happened is that we unknowingly sold ourselves into slavery to powers that on our own we can't compete against. This is terrifying, horrific news, and it's really easy to prove, I think. I mean, the powers—Paul Paul speaks about this in Romans, right, when he talks about these, these powers are, are primarily two, death and sin— which he speaks about as if they're governments. They're not just things that happen to me or that I do. They're powers that are, you know, Paul speaks about how death reigned, it lorded, sin reigned, it lorded, it exerted control. Mm -hmm. And it, and this is, again, I think it's so easy to prove. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot of reflection on a day to just go, hmm, have I ever done anything that I didn't want to do? that I knew as I was doing it, I should not do this. And that even as I was doing it, I said to myself, I hate doing this. Why am I doing this? And we've all experienced that. And the biblical explanation is because sin is a power. And yes, I connive in it, but it's a power first with which I connive. Does that make sense? And not only does it make sense, it's an important to see that sin has this drive to rule over us in contrast to the words that God said at the creation of the first humans that you are to have dominion right. over everything else. And that the, by sin, human dominion over creation is lost. Right. And this dominion of evil, which St. Paul also identifies as the mystery of evil. It's something that is beyond our comprehension and, and either gets us to go into further despair right. or to take ownership of my sin, ask forgiveness, and then try to work with other sinners to correct it. I mean, I, I don't know, you're a bit younger than I, but when I was growing up in the 50s, and especially, I saw it in the 60s as a young, young man, that the results of the evil of World War II mm. came hard upon us, and people despaired, in existentialism. Right. It was just despair. There's no meaning. And right. philosophers wrote plays. Life is meaningless. It's nothing. And right. they, well, that's one of the books, Being a Nothingness right. by Jean-Paul Sartre. Right. That was one response. Or John Paul II, who comes out of that same experience of evil, seeks to fight against it and transform it. This is the, the struggle that we have. Yeah, and I think, you know, some people, because maybe they don't know Scripture, they don't understand that nobody thinks more seriously about evil than the Bible. Yeah. 
Scripture is not running from this. Scripture is staring this in the face, saying, if God is God, then why? And so it, we don't have to we don't have to hide from the bad news. We want to be able to confront it, just like the doctor wants to be able to tell you, hey, I can take care of you, but I, I need you to know you have cancer. And so Scripture is revealing this root problem. And um, I'm, I'm trying to help people see this way because this makes sense out of life, right? So th the image that the Lord's given to me that's been so helpful came to me leading a retreat for a bunch of college kids a set of years ago was that the best way I know how to understand the human situation is imagine what it would be like to be a victim of human trafficking. So you've been taken mm -hmm. and nobody knows where you are and nobody's coming for you, and you're in the hands of someone who loves to hurt you. Th this is the human race. Yeah. And, and I think one of the reasons why it's so helpful to, to think this way is because it helps me understand that as crucial as it is to repent, it's not enough. Someone needs to rescue me, yeah. you know, um, and, and so what this does is this sets up Jesus in a way that uh, was the way that the patristics, the, the early church fathers, used to preach about him. But I don't think most people have ever thought of Jesus in this way. And so you ask the question, so, so why does God become a man? And, and the, not the only, to be sure, but one of the most emphatic ways that the, the fathers of the church answered that question was, God became a man to go to war. He hides himself in flesh so as to bind the strong man. I mean, that, Jesus in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke talks, tells that parable about, you know, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his possessions, his goods are safe. Well, the strong man's Satan, and, and this world is his palace, and we are his goods. But Jesus goes on to say, but when one stronger than he attacks him, and overcomes him, then his possessions go free. And I think so many people have an image of Jesus that goes something like this, especially men. Uh, he's kind. He's gentle. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. He loves children. He plays with cats. And those are all true, even the cats thing. He made them all, right? But who Jesus... I mean, in addition to that, and most emphatically, Jesus is Lord. And that's not the ending of a prayer. It's a reality. Yeah. And to say Jesus is Lord is to say nobody else is. And it's because that's true that we can live with hope, because he is absolutely and utterly unconquerable. And he's become a man so as to engage Sin, death, Satan, and hell in battle, and he's won. Now, we have to take a little break. I want to come back. But I just want to make it real clear before we do. My Bible never had Jesus playing with cats. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't in my Bible. So, so make sure that all these men don't put that in there. We'll take a little break, Father. We'll come right back and continue on from there. Welcome back. We are speaking with Father John Ricardo of Acts 29 Ministries. He is also the author of the book Rescued. And in this book, he is uh, talking about how we can do uh, ministry of evangelization in our culture. 
Um, uh, this this is uh, itself a great thing about, uh, again, it's called rescued the unexpected and extraordinary news of the gospel. You can get this from our religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 3813. And before we get back to this, I just was also asked to uh, remind you that Father Miguel Maria of the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word uh, is going to lead a pilgrimage to Amsterdam, uh, Belgium, Germany, and Switzerland. That'll be May 25th to June 5th of next year, 2023. If you want to find out more about it, go to visitationpilgrimages.com and they'll let you know about it. Father, in, you were talking before about this great conflict with evil, that yep. Jesus Christ became man to make this conflict, you know, to engage this conflict in a very direct way. You know, in some ways it reminds me of many commandos who go in camouflage, yep. uh, hunters who go in camouflage. This is part of what, you know, gets done so that you blend in. He blended in with humanity by truly becoming one of us. It wasn't just a camouflage uh, outfit. He really became fully human. So uh, and at the same time remaining completely the God, he's God and man and makes this invasion. And I recall how C.S. Lewis compared this to the D-Day invasion. Yep. That once we took Normandy, the war was won in Western That's Europe. Right. But that did not mean that there wasn't a Battle of the Bulge and many other deadly battles that were hard fought against the Third Reich. And Christ has invaded and has won the war. It's, it's going to be his, there's no doubt. But that doesn't mean the struggle is over for us. Like the soldiers in World War II, it is an ongoing struggle until we reach Berlin and the complete capitulation of the enemy. Yeah. This is sort of what you're talking about, too, that this ongoing struggle for souls against evil is a key part of this mission you have. Yeah. In fact, I use that imagery from Lewis over and over again. I find it to be very helpful personally. Yes. I mean, there's this there's this gap between D-Day and V-E Day. Right. And um, the analogy is that we're living in that gap, that the, the battle is won. And yet there's fierce fighting still going on right now. And um, Jesus will come back and gloriously make all things new. There's there's work for us to do in the meantime. But I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, because you were talking about the soldiers in, in camouflage. And I know you're a hunter. And this is an image which the Lord has kind of led me to um, understand about him, which turns out to be very much an image which the fathers of the church used, even though they didn't use the words I'm going to use. So I was sitting in my chapel one day praying, and out of nowhere, I hear two words that I'd never heard in my life. I'm not a hunter. And the words were ambush predator. And I'm like, what in the world's an ambush predator? So I had my phone with me. So I Google ambush predator, and I just started to crack up. So an, an ambush predator, for those who don't know, is described as um, a creature which lies motionless and still, camouflaged with its environment for one purpose, to attract prey. So, you know, spiders are ambush predators, and crocodiles are ambush predators, and snakes are ambush predators. And lo and behold, again, without using those two words, that is the way that... Um, Augustine, Gregory of Nyssa, Irenaeus, um, Justin, Isidore of Seville, um, on and on and on, Maximus the Confessor, that's how they preached about what Jesus is doing on the cross. In, in other words, we look at Jesus on the cross, and 
I think most of us see a victim and he looks like he's the hunted. But in fact, Jesus is the aggressor and he's hunting. That's not at all to say that Jesus isn't really suffering. Of course he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's doing, he's doing a number of things on the cross. He's showing me the Father's love. He's making atonement for me. But he's also going to battle. And, you know, the, Augustine would use the image of a mousetrap. Um, Gregory of Nyssa uses the image of a fishhook. And in, in both of those images, you know, the, the humanity of Jesus is either the, the bait or the cheese, and his divinity is the hook or the bar. And he's trying to draw the enemy into battle. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he says, you know, the story of Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise. And that's what's going on. And that image of Jesus hunting, I mean, who who's on the cross? Well, it's the God who made a universe that's 90 plus billion light years across. You can't nail God to a cross. Like, where are you going to find the nail? There's only one way God can get on a cross. He has to want to be there. I mean, Jesus, before he enters into his passion, he says, the ruler of this world is coming for me. He has no power over me. Right. I'm I'm allowing this to happen. And I don't know about you, but the, the scene in The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson nailed this. So yep. for those uh, who, who know the movie, right after Jesus dies, um, there's a, a tear that falls from the, the heavens, and then it kind of explodes in the ground. And then for, it's less than a second on the screen, you see the figure of Satan standing on this cracked earth, screaming, and it is not a scream of glee. It's a scream of, I'm going to be very intentional when I say this, so don't be alarmed, censors. It's a scream of like, oh, (laughs) nuts. Like, what just happened? And and that scene grabs exactly what the early church uh, used to preach about Jesus' death and resurrection. They, They would say it's only right that the one who deceived our race into selling ourselves into slavery should himself be deceived into bringing about his own destruction. That's an amazing image of Jesus, and most of us have never heard it. Yeah, yeah. I think... I'll follow him. If I'd known that when I was a young boy, like, I'm in. It would have saved me a lot of heartache, because then Lewis goes on to say, after what he says in that earlier passage about he's landed in disguise, he goes on to say, and he calls us all to embark on a great campaign of sabotage, that with the weapons of truth and love and goodness and beauty and reconciliation, our task now as disciples of Jesus, until the Lord comes back and makes all things new, is to do everything we can to take what the enemy has twisted and perverted and to bend it back into conformity with how the Father created it to be. And if that costs us our lives, fine, because Jesus is one and death just doesn't scare me anymore. But that's our task. That's the mission. At least for men, that riles men in a very positive way. There are a couple things that we have to keep in mind. We mentioned before that the invasion of Normandy was not the end of the war. Right. And the Germans didn't say, oh, well, they invaded. I guess we might as well give up. No, that didn't happen. And neither does the evil one give up simply because Christ has died and risen from the dead and redeemed us and won the, the war. He, he's not giving up. What we fail at is paying attention to our Lord's identification of characteristics of Satan, mm-hmm. that he is a liar and the father of lies. So where there's deception, you should see Satan. Satan is a murderer and death is God's enemy. When you see people who use death as a solution to the world's problems, kill all the Jews because, and the gypsies, kill the Slavic people, or, or 
kill the babies the in unborn. the womb, kill the kill right. the people who are old and sick, and just using when they want to make an alliance with death, they are on the side of Satan. And people don't make that clear enough. And the same thing with those who would use drugs to kill 100,000 of our people a year. My cousin, a much beloved cousin, just died from fentanyl poisoning. It's not an overdose. It's poison that he had no idea was in what he was doing. This is satanic. And you look at the drug dealers, they celebrate death. Santa Muerte is their saint. Holy death, or Saint Death is their deity. And then the last thing that you see in Revelation 12, verse 10, that when Satan is defeated by Saint Michael, the cry of praise to God is followed by, now is the accuser of our brethren fallen who accuses them day and night. That kind of accusatory approach toward life, to can- the cancel culture right. has that satanic background behind it. And we need to pay attention to the tools of the enemy so that he doesn't trick us into his side. Yeah, I, I love that. If I can if I can build on it a little, two things that have been helpful for me. So one is, so there is no one anti-gospel, right? I mean, there are many anti-gospels, but... Just but like the Bible the, says there are many anti-Christs. Anti-Christs, right. But one of the tenets of the anti-gospel is a denial of the fall. So in other words, yep. when you take the, the biblical lenses off... And you, so when you eliminate um, the enemy, Satan, you still have evil in the world. I mean, just read the news, look at the things you've just described. And so what happens if you're not looking through biblical lenses is you have to find somebody to blame. And that's what, that's what we're doing, right? So why is the world messed up? Well, it's the Jews, or it's the unborn, or it's the it's the immigrants, or it's the rich, or it's the poor, it's the blacks, it's the whites, it's the whatever, it's the Yankee fans, it's whatever, right? No, no, no. The biblical vision is the enemy is the enemy. Period. Yes. Period. Everybody else is a rebel to be one. And and I think this is so important for us in the church to get clear on. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no human enemy. I might be their enemy, but they're not mine. That's not to say people aren't doing wicked things. You just described a number of those instances, right? I mean, there are clearly people doing wicked things. Uh, But unfortunately, I've done wicked things. I mean, there isn't any of us who hasn't done wicked things, even if it's just in our thoughts. Some of us, it's more than that. But the, the Lord's desire is to win everybody back. And I don't know about you, the most the most extraordinary story I've ever heard of this, because I, th- you, that Lewis quote that Jesus sends us out as agents of sabotage, he also sends us out as agents of reconciliation. And right now in our culture, we're at each other's throats, and politics can't fix this. Politics is very important. It can't fix the problem, because the problem is the human heart. Law can't fix this. The only person who can fix this is God, because the only person who can change the heart is God. And the church should know, like nobody knows, that what God does best is he takes people who used to despise one another, and he doesn't make it possible for them to tolerate each other. He makes it possible for them to love each other and to call them brothers and sister. And the, the most amazing story I've ever heard, and I just heard it a year and a half ago, has to do with um, the Jesuit priest Vladislav Lone who was the superior in Krakow during World War II. And so uh, Rudolf Hess, who was the commandant of Auschwitz, who has been who was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. was That's trained right. by, rec- recruited by, and then trained by Himmler as a commandant, served in Dachau, then he went to Sachsenhausen, and then he was at Auschwitz for four years. He, he was finally apprehended after the war, he acknowledged at Nuremberg that he was personally responsible for three and a half million people's deaths. 
didn't repent, just acknowledged it. He's the only war criminal that I know of who actually acknowledged it. Yep. When he was a, a, a new commandant, he arrested all the dissidents in Poland, which especially included the priests. And so they arrested all the Jesuits in Krakow. That's right. Everybody except Lone. He wasn't there that day. I don't know where he was. He was out shopping or something. I don't know that part of the story. So he comes home. They're all gone. He's like, Where's the, where are my brothers? One of the neighbors says they were arrested by the Gestapo. So Lone breaks into Auschwitz. Like, you got to be kidding me turns himself into the guards. The guards say, what are you doing here? He says, you've arrested my brothers. I want to die with them. They, they look at him and say, you're nuts. They bring him to Hess. Hess says, what are you doing here? He says, I, I'm one of the Jesuit priests. I want to die with my brothers. He says, get out of here. And so he kicks him out of Auschwitz. He survives the war, Father Lone. Hess is arrested. He's sent back to Poland after the Nuremberg trials, and he knows he's going to be executed. He's not afraid of dying. He's afraid of being tortured because he's going back to Poland. And sure enough, the guards in the prison where he's being held have tattoos. They were in Auschwitz, but they don't torture him. They actually treat him kindly. He's blown away by this. He, he's in prison. He just like happens to be in prison in a town called Wadowice, which is where John Paul's from. And one day, as he's sitting in prison, this man who was known in Auschwitz as the animal, um, hears bells ringing from the church where John Paul was baptized. That day just happened to be Good Friday. And he asks to see a priest. And they can't find a priest that speaks German. And he remembers the name of the man that he released. And he writes it down. He says, find this man. So the man that he kicks out of Auschwitz just happened to be praying in front of the image of divine mercy in the convent not far from that town that Faustina had commissioned. He comes to the prison, walks in, greets him as Ananias greeted Saul, my brother, this man who killed three and a half million people including his friends. He hears his confession. He comes back the next day with the Eucharist. And the guards describe that when Lone walked in with Jesus, this man fell to the ground and began to sob. He receives communion and he's hung the next week. Yep. And when I first heard that story, it was like, it was like Jesus taunting Satan. Yeah. Saying... You can't even have him. Like, I want to rob you blind because no man is my enemy. And we, we desperately need that in the church, right? Again, there's so much evil that's going on, but we need to see that the one we're fighting, we're fighting against principalities and powers, not against flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And we want to we want to do everything we can to win the rebels, just like someone won me. You know, I stayed at that Jesuit community you were just talking about. Oh no way! The, oh yeah, <laughs> on the Kopernika Street in uh, Krakow, yeah. and in the bay, as you go to the lower part of the Sacred Heart, it's Sacred Heart Church. And in Poland, you see wherever the Sacred Heart is in a church portrayed, they put the divine mercy side by side, that this is not opposition, it's bringing it out even more. Yeah. And there's a plaque to, to mark where 30 of those Jesuits were just machine gunned in the basement of the church. You know, this was very real and yet, you know, the, the forgiveness was also very real. And yeah. seeing John Paul himself learned the importance of the divine mercy by praying the chapel when it was first made known in the 40s, during the war. And yeah. he would pray 
for the Nazi soldiers. And this is something, uh, I, I, something I've done lots in confession. We hear lots of things about people who are addicted to pornography and other things. And I tell them, look, pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet for all the people you were looking at so they find mercy and you find mercy in seeking it for them. Same yeah. for the drug dealers and the Beautiful. rest. This That's is right. our call to imitate Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Yeah. This is, and we as priests especially, are so privileged to do that in confession. But we want to urge people to come to confession Find that forgiveness and peace that the world cannot give you. It'll take it away from you. Just That's watch right. the news all day and your peace is gone. That's right. Seek Christ and you'll find him. This, uh, you know, this has uh, been a great conversation, Father. I really, really enjoyed this, especially that story. I knew, uh, I saw a letter by Hess to his wife after, mm -hmm. right after that. And he wrote to her saying, I deserve far worse than hanging. There's nothing but pray for me. And, asked, and he asked her, his family, because he shamed his family, but he wanted yep, them to pray totally. for him. I want to remind people about your book, Rescued, the Unexpected and Extraordinary News of the Gospel. It's by our guest, Father John Ricardo. You can get it from EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 3813. And not only that, but live out Acts 29 by becoming preachers yourselves. This, this is a great thing that you're getting going, Father, and hopefully more folks will be part of it because they can evangelize where we can't go. Amen. Would you... Join me in giving a blessing to our audience. Love to. All right. May Almighty God bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, all the way from the Detroit. And I want to thank all of our audience, too. Uh, you make this network possible. We can have Father Ricardo on here because of the way you support our network, along with all of our other programs. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. God bless you, and thank you.